You're listening to a Monday Breakfast podcast on 3CR 855 AM. Thanks for tuning in. 3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast in the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We acknowledge sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Thursday, Wednesday, Monday, Monday. Tuesday, Monday. Friday. <laughs> You've yeah. been on so many breakfast yeah. shows. No, it's, no, it's been, it's been the last 10, 15 days where you sort of don't know what day it is with all these public holidays yep. and I haven't actually been at work so I've had the last 10 days off and... You know, it's, uh, yeah, you get a bit confused, but it is 3CR <laughs> breakfast. It doesn't matter what day it is, it's always 3CR breakfast at 855 AM. Good morning, Judith. It is, and it's, uh, April 29th. Yeah, good morning. Oh, that Alice. month is, I mean, I remember I was talking about April Fool's Day. That's right. Yeah. Not long ago, yeah. And we're about to get into another month full of yeah. maybe April Fool's with this, <laughs> with this campaign of uh, politics we're, we're happening. We'll be talking about that later in the show, <laughs> yeah, some of the fake news that's going on, for sure. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, so on the show today, we've got Jerome Small, who is a Victorian socialist candidate for Colwell, um, talking about the government-owned um, recycling and toxic waste disposal plant being built on the old site of the Ford plant out in Broadmeadows, Campbellfield, essentially since that, um, you know, horrific fire that happened a, a few weeks ago. Yes, that was terrible. Actually, yeah. I, I'm thinking we were getting into rubbish quite a lot on this show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Last, last yeah. week we, we went out and picked up rubbish with, well, I didn't, I more uh, talked to people picking up rubbish. Well, toxic uh, waste disposal is big business, you oh. know, yeah. and it shouldn't be big business. It should yes. just be a thing that yeah. people, so I was, I was away for a few days, actually, sorry to interject, but my kids were picking up rubbish on the beach and they filled up a plastic bag within less than five minutes. There's just rubbish yes. everywhere. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And Love Our Street was out yesterday yeah. um, in a John Kane Memorial Park, I think, doing exactly that. Mm. Right. Yeah, so once you start noticing it, it becomes very apparent. Yeah, so rubbish, that's, uh, yeah, we're into rubbish. <laughs> now, it's very exciting. Later, like almost at the end of the show, like think about um, uh, 8.20, 8.25, we're going to have a giveaway. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, tickets tickets to see um, Jane Goodall. And she's been brought uh, to Australia this time by um, Thinking. So we'll talk to Susie Jamil from, um, she's director of Thinking, and she'll tell us more about that. And we'll have two double passes to give away. So, um, to 3CR subscribers. Oh, yes, very important that you said that, Dean. Thank you. You have to be a <laughs> subscriber. Of course, you can call and subscribe on the moment if you're really <laughs> interested in those tickets. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we, we do take those subscriptions. <laughs> but anyway, so, yeah, so keep that in mind for later in the show. Um, and um, Dennis Muller will be on after 8, around 8, to talk about his article in the conversation came out on Friday 
uh, lies, obfuscation, and fake news are making it a dispiriting and dangerous election campaign. Mm. So mm. it be interesting to hear. I mean, it was a fascinating article and uh, something that we need to be paying attention to as the election comes towards us. Especially because over the last maybe seven years, we've just seen an unprecedented um, democratic process evolve within our eyes, you know, three you different... You mean undermined. Yeah, 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 yeah. Three pr- different prime ministers, you know. Oh, no sorry, one's sorry, actually you're talking here. Yeah, 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 yeah it's, it's yeah. just, you know, how, how, what, what, then people sort of say, well, why would I vote if this is what's happening? Yes, you, know? you, uh, you, you vote for one person one day and the yeah. next day there's someone yeah. else there. Or the perfect yeah. example, sorry to interrupt, is mm. the Brexit issue. Yeah. You know, yeah. they went to the people, they said, let's vote. Yeah. The people voted... <clears throat> not knowing what was going to happen, mm. but they voted yes to get out. Mm. But all of a sudden, they're like, oh, we might have to have another one. I'm in favour. That's a very, very one. basic issue that people were voting for, yes or no. Yeah. So when it comes to things like the environment, or when it comes to things like you know, dental mm. health for mm. pensioners and all that stuff, who do you believe? Yeah, it's yeah. really hard. And I understand in Britain a lot of people actually didn't vote, and particularly a lot of young people didn't vote. And they yeah. were among mm. the group most affected by this, I think. Yeah. yeah. Were, were you in Britain at the time? I was. Did you yeah. vote? Yeah, I did. Yeah, so, okay. <laughs> yeah, I voted to remain. A lot yes. of my friends voted to leave. Really? Yeah. Oh. And so, and that went against a lot of what the data was saying at the time with young people as well. Mm. Yeah. Um, yes. But yeah, yeah, but from in my background, from a working class place in the UK, um, I think a lot of people just felt ignored and I don't think they were actually well educated in what they were deciding, yeah. which no, is they, what they a lot weren't. of people, yeah. and I think that's why there's so much anger and people want the second, a second chance because... Well, there, there, has, there wasn't a plan. There wasn't no. a plan put in place to say, hey, when it happens, this is what's going to happen. Whereas yeah. with a Scottish one... They were told exactly what was going to happen after. Yeah. Mm, Whereas yeah. in, a, in the UK, in England, they just said, let's vote and we'll yeah. work it out. Yeah. Which isn't the mm, way to yeah. do I love the Scots, I, I have to say. <laughs> I'm very fond of the yeah. Scots. Yeah. Yeah. So... Yes, and uh, I mean, guess I guess initially when you're speaking, Dean, I thought you're talking about the the you know the fact that in Brazil, for example, mm. Facebook and WhatsApp was very active in the election, yeah. that Bolsonaro yeah. in and spreading lies about um, the left candidate yeah. that was also running, and uh, of course the U.S. So mm-hmm. you know it's been around a lot, and of course in Australia we've seen, as you say, the you know rapid change. So we'll be um, talking to Dennis Muller about that, and I'm interested to hear his take on yeah. it. Yeah, it's very and, interesting. Uh, yeah. And then um, we're also going to be, and, and I just, I just, I just was fascinated. <laughs> we'll be hearing from Casey Sinclair about her research into Mrs. Fanny Finch. Now, you all know who Mrs. Fanny Finch is. No. <laughs> I don't well, know who you know, we're talking Fanny elections. Is. We're going back now to the 1850s. Oh. Yes, History on the gold fields in Castle, Maine. Mm. And Fanny Finch was a woman of color yep. who was a businesswoman on the gold fields. And uh, she, she ran a well-established business. Do you know that? Yeah, she did. I, I did. You have, do know Fanny yeah, Finch's. I, I knew who she. I know who she is. I've done a little bit of media on on her yes. and how women were treated around that time. Yes, and what she achieved. Okay. Well, we're wow. going to hear from okay. Casey Sinclair, who's doing her PhD research.
Oh, on this. And so yeah. she, she's looked at the, uh, inter, what she calls the intersectional women, who, mm. who are women of, of color, uh, class comes in. Of course, women itself is an area of disadvantage, mm-hmm. so the intersection of those kinds of disadvantages. So she looked at that on the, uh, during her, for her honors thesis, and now she's really focusing on Fanny. So, yeah, so look, one other person knows about yeah, that. Yeah, that's Fanny. You've only come to Australia recently. That's my excuse for everything. Well, I'll tell you what, I felt like I was in a Dickens novel. Yeah. <laughs> she was telling me it really yeah. felt like that. And so. I think the benefit of you coming into a place like this is that you will learn a lot more than you might on the street. Yeah. Yes, about and we Australia. will yeah. learn a lot more from you, as we yeah. do already, about Brexit. So yeah. Yay. So that, that's really good. So um, I'm just wondering, though, just quickly, how was everyone's weekend? It was, yeah, really good. I yeah. had a great weekend. What did you get up to? Um, I went to the Baranga Film Festival. Oh, I wondered if you went. At yeah. the Acme, What yeah. did you see? I saw um, Angelique's Isle, which mm. was a Canadian film about an indigenous um, woman and her newlywed. And they basically get ripped off by this awful copper merchant and it's in, set in the 18, 1800s oh, wow, and okay. yeah they, they end yeah. up being deserted on an island and it's about her resilience and her survival and ultimately the strength of indigenous women and mm-hmm. the part that that played in history and it was yeah it was fascinating and it's based on a true story as well so the yeah the name of the film is Angelique's Isle based on the true story of Angelique Mott Wow, and it was it was really emotional as well. So, yeah. and that was part of the whole festival. That was part of the film yeah. festival at Acme. Mm-hmm. Wow, great! <laughs> so, so and great. It, it's quite interesting when you sort of start to hear about. I mean, we hear about the indigenous struggle here in Australia, but the Canadian indigenous struggle. Whenever I see a documentary on it, it's just things that you wouldn't know. Yeah, and, no, you know, right. and unless yeah, you have right. a look, you're like, oh. Yeah. Yeah, this yeah. is happening yeah. over there as well, you mm. know? Yeah. 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 Oh, and the and film. longer. Longer. Yeah. yeah. You know, 400 years mm. of, uh, of occupation mm. settlement in, in Canada. Whereas in Australia, it's, you know, the things that happen are living memory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Almost, you yeah, know, almost, grandparents, yeah. great-grandparents. Yeah. It's very present. Yeah. Um, it's very present there too, but yeah. So the film was actually directed by Michelle DeRosia, who mm. is an a indigenous Canadian woman. Mm-hmm. Um but it was based in Michigan, so it was based off of the American indigenous experience. Right. Yes. Um, but it's actually, she read the story in an article in the newspaper, and it took 10 years, and she decided to adapt, adapt it into a film, which was uh, supported by the Ontario Film, film company. Yeah, so film corporation. Yeah, yeah, they yeah, have yeah. a long history also of doing some really, funding some really excellent films. Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah, it was incredible. Um I think it was just really heartbreaking to see the change um, and the loss of the loss of culture there. Yeah, it all it always yeah. is. And I mean, interesting thinking about Fanny Finch as well. I mean, of course, in that you think about you know, the indigenous women, the indigenous peoples that were here, and how you know there was terra nullius, which is not even recognized they're here. And then you get even to the history of the, cl- the colonial history. Well, there weren't any black people here, were mm-hmm. there? Mm-hmm. You know, it's just the way, you know, whole groups are just wiped out of the historical record. And that's what, yeah, we'll hear more. Yeah. yeah, so that's what we'll be looking at in part today. Yeah, so I think we've got some music. Yeah, and we'll yeah. come back with our next guest. Yeah, yeah. we'll be back soon. Yeah.
Before the government started turning back boats in 2013, around 10,000 Tamils arrived seeking refuge in Australia, fleeing from the Sri Lankan government. On Saturday, 4th of May, we invite you to a film screening of No Fire Zone at 6.45pm at RMIT Cinema Theatre. The cinema is located at Building 80, 455 Swanston Street, opposite the RMIT tram stop. This award-winning documentary about the war helps answer why Tamils fled to places like Australia and why it is not safe for them to return. This event is co-hosted by Tamil Refugee Council and Dr Liam Ward from RMIT's School of Media and Communication, supported by 3CR. Subscribe now at 3cr.org.au. My name is Ian Ham, and I'm the chair of the Healing Foundation's Stolen Generations Reference Group. At three weeks of age, I was separated from my birth family. And even though they lived just 50 kilometres away, I never knew they existed. I never met my mum, and it pains me to this day. There are thousands of Aboriginal people just like me, and our stories have never been heard. These stories form the basis of Australia's first Stolen Generations resource kit for schools. To download the kit, go to healingfoundation.org.au. A 3CR supporter. And uh, just before those announcements, we heard Tarini by Fatamata Diawara, and that's from her new album, Fenfo, which means something to say. And uh, it's a beautiful album, and that's a particularly lovely song. And it's about the heartache felt by lovers separated by distance, but it also has a message about migration and people having to leave. So, yeah, uh, just a yeah, lovely song, beautiful singer. Yeah, I enjoyed that song. It was beautiful, yeah. 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 Um, I just wanted to touch base. I know we always have, uh, having a bit of trouble getting hold of Jerome Small, but I thought we could discuss what happened over the weekend with... Uh, you mean the news over the weekend? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The yeah. Greg Denham's work that he's been doing. So the second pill testing trial in Australia was given the go-ahead yeah, um, at Canberra for the Groove and the Moo Festival. Yeah, you know, obviously such good news. It, oh, it's fantastic news. This yes. is... After, you know, five young people um, aged between 9 and 23 died at festivals in New South Wales alone from September to January. It's which such is, a sad mm. loss of life and just so unnecessary when things can be done to prevent it. But, but it's, it was so close. I mean, the festival started on the 24th. It goes for a while, yeah. but they left it till now to even announce that second because it was oh. very successful. Uh, Greg yeah. had said last year. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and apparently there was a few dignitaries who went in and Ooh. had a quick look at it, how the process works. Oh, great. And then they, um, yeah, came back and approved it, which is good news for the people going to Canberra and hopefully can be rolled out with people like mm. Greg and other Yeah, we'll, we'll be having the Greg on again soon, I think, because, he, you know, he's always great bringing us up to date on what's going on both nationally mm. in the state and internationally as well. So, mm. it definitely goes finger on the pulse. So yeah. is that going to be rolled out throughout Victoria then? Well, no, this one is for this festival, which is 
in Canberra. Okay. Uh, it's called Groove in the Moo, and the date's, yeah, Friday the 26th till Saturday the 11th of May. And the idea is that, you know, the second time this festival has trialled the pill test in Canberra, after last year's trial was declared a success, which yes. is, you know, and the whole idea is to try and get it to all festivals. I wouldn't know how many happen throughout the year, but, yeah. you know. Um, I think it's a state issue. States mm. have to make those decisions, so you need to be speaking to your state representatives Lobbying. I mean, Fiona Patton from the Reason Party has done fabulous work on drug policy, mm. and she's been on our show a few times as well. So that's been, um, yeah, lots of work to be done there. Mm. And we've um, got Jerome Small on the line, and we're just about to talk to him in just a moment. Um, so what's happened is the Victorian Socialist Party, and Jerome is a member for the city of Colwell, um, and he will be talking to us about calling for the government to have a recycling and toxic waste disposal plant on the old site of the Ford factory. Good morning, Jerome. Good morning, Dean, and good morning, uh, 3CR. Yeah, okay. thanks for joining uh, <laughs> Judith and Alice and myself. Yeah. Um, yeah. With this uh, you know, election coming over the next uh, few weeks, I, I, I believe that um, one of your key drivers, especially after what happened out there in Camberfield, you are calling for a government-owned, state-of-the-art recycling and waste disposal plant to be built on the side of the uh, old factory there. Yeah, that's one of the things that we're calling for. Um, and like, it's disused industrial land. It was, according to the local member at the time, back in the 1950s, it was basically pretty much gifted to the Ford Motor Company by the state government, taken out of Housing Commission land. Um, the Ford Motor Company obviously pumped like untold billions of dollars of wealth out of that place and now stand to make even more money by selling it off. Um, so we're saying... The, the, like anyone who's paid attention to the news or you know sniffed the air around the northern suburbs over the last while knows that there's a massive crisis for um, for all sorts of waste in this uh, state, uh, including recycling, including straight garbage, including um, of course the uh, the chemicals and other hazardous materials that went up in Campbellfield a couple of weeks ago. So there's no reason we're you know, we're in 2019. Pretty much every human society so far has managed eventually to work out some way of avoiding um, drowning in our own waste. And here in Melbourne in 2019, we seem to be in danger of doing just that. So why not um, turn that side over to, uh, you know, a, a government-owned facility, which is important. Private industries had their chance with this um, with this whole sector, I reckon. And all of this light touch deregulation, self-regulation, all of that sort of jazz has resulted in a situation where, um, you know, the industry is just out of control and crim seem to have a, a large chunk of it. Mm. Um, so they've had their chance. I think it's time for the government to step in generally. And yeah, why not? You know, let's do it ourselves instead of export our waste problems to other countries like Malaysia or India or China um, and deal with it in a, um, in a high-tech and safe way um, here in the northern suburbs. And um, when I was reading uh, your press release, I had a quick look at, uh, there was an article about uh, Upper Ringwood, New Jersey, where um, Ford had a plant there and then they closed it down. And, you know, some of the people that lived around there sued Ford because they started getting skin rashes and things like that, but mainly due to some of the chemical waste that Ford had left there from their paint production plant. Uh, And you mentioned in yours that 
building this recyclable waste plant would be a fast turnaround solution. Was Ford using any chemicals on their land that might slow down that process as well, do you think? don't actually know. Um, that's a good question, and obviously that would have to be checked out. Mm. The um, Yeah, I mean, I've been doing a bit of reading about the United States and the National Toxics uh, Network that existed over there for a whole bunch of years, and it, it really rings a bell um, like in terms of what's happening in the northern suburbs, though, like companies, you know, such as Ford, but a huge range of companies basically come in, um, exploit the labour force, mm. uh, exploit the environment and leave an awful toxic mess for people to clean up. Um, so, yeah, it's about time we had some people power applied to the issue. Um, I can't comment specifically about, you know, what Ford may or may not have yeah. left in the soil up there. I'm sure that'll mm. have to be checked out. And, and I think that's where we know that toxic waste disposal is big business with sort of three corporations like uh, Viola and Cleanaway and Suez operating. But one of the biggest issues with what happened in the northern suburbs obviously was, you know, things like um, some of the chemicals being found at some of those uh, sites and not really having an understanding as to what is out there as well. Yeah, so there seem to be, well, there's at least two parts, maybe three parts to the problem. And one is actually the companies producing the waste, which... Um, as the law currently stands, and I understand that there are changes coming in um, in the second half of next year, but as the law currently stands, companies have been able to produce or use uh, large quantities of chemicals, pay some shonk, some amount mm. of money to dispose of the problem, and that's their legal liability discharge. Now, I understand that that is changing under state government legislation uh, brought in last year that comes into effect in the second half of next year. But part of the problem still is just the... It really lacks, in my view, really um, light-touch sort of approach to regulation that the regulators are taking. For instance, I was at the community consultation meeting up at the Hume Global Learning Network um, uh, the Sunday after the most recent Campbellfield fire. And the EPA, was, so the Environmental Protection Authority, were saying, look, you know, they had suspended this operator's licence to operate. That's a very heavy sanction that was imposed. Mm. Now, the thing about that is that sanction, suspending the licence to operate, means that Bradbury's, the facility that blew up, couldn't take any more chemicals in. But <laughs> they could still directly, keep operating. That, that's right. They were left in charge of the site um, you know, and could keep operating, actually, and could uh, make their own arrangements for disposal mm. of the waste on site. So I raised the question, look, surely the EPA and or WorkSafe have powers uh, beyond that to actually step in and say... You know, you've blown it to the company. Mm. Um, you know, we've ordered the trucks. We'll organise the safe removal. We might say, send you the bill, but we're taking control of the site. The response from the woman in charge of WorkSafe was, um, yes, we do have that power. Gave a series of examples where that step-in power had been used, but then said, well, but business has rights too. Yeah, and so we've got to give them a chance to blow it first, and then yeah, we'll go in. Yeah, right, literally, yeah. Because yeah. so even the fine wasn't the substantial, was it? I beg your pardon? The fine wasn't substantial. There's, like, there's been no fine issued yeah. for this particular incident. Um, and, you know, there'll be invest um, there's investigations from the arson squad as well as various regulators. So um, mm. I, mean, I think you can watch this space. But part of the problem is, as I understand it, is that area has received so many toxic blasts over um, five, such a years, period yeah. of time. It, it's hard... It may be hard for the regulator to actually prove this toxic blast 
resulted in this particular environmental uh, degradation. And in terms of the human health effects, it, it really seems to myself and to residents of that area, no one's even looking. Like uh, up at Morwell, when they had the catastrophic mine fire, uh, I think that was five years ago, um, at the, the Hazelwood open cut, and that blanketed the town of Morwell with toxic smoke for, I think it was 45 days, that fire burned. Um, and after a lot of community agitation up there, one of the things that was put in place was a community health study to do baseline measurements of the health to look at all of the data about what happened during that fire. What did the pharmacists say? What were hospital admissions? Uh, what did the AMBOs say? To gather data on what the actual health effects have been on the human beings who have been subjected to these fires. And this is like Campbellfield. I mean, everyone seems to have a different count. At least four major fires affecting that group of residents over the last three years. Mm. Um, major tyre fires, which have got, you know, pretty bursts of toxic smoke into workplaces. Uh, producing clusters of cancers, according to some of the workers in, uh, you know, some of the distribution centres up there. But no, like I said, no one's even looking at that. So, Jerome, Jerome yeah. it's Judith here. I'm, I'm just, I'm very interested in what you're saying about the health effects. I mean, it seems to me that some citizens are more equal than others in this situation. And if it happened in some other suburbs, perhaps more wealthy suburbs. Well, it just wouldn't happen because it, those kinds of industries wouldn't even be located there. But is there any re, have we any results of the study that was done? You said they put a study in place, talked to the AMBOs. Any results of that study? In, in, in Morwell, my yes. understanding is that the study is still ongoing and that mm. was part of the, um, the, uh, the result that was achieved by, um, uh, the community sort of agitation up there. So certainly it was a very significant spike in, you know, both, well, in, yeah. in, in deaths, and this is because it was so hard to get the actual figures from the, oh, yes. uh, the, the coroner. They keep that sort of stuff very tight. The only yeah. figures that I've seen that I could understand were put together by local residents going through the births, deaths and marriages, like going through right. the injury notices of local yes. papers up in the Latrobe Valley and comparing that year of the fire to the two years previously. And there was the three months that they studied, maybe it was four months, it was in the order, it was more than 40 uh, excess deaths. But, and that's citizens just... You know, yeah, so, so it's left, it left to the citizens to do the work mm. that should be done by government. And the, the fact that that study just continues and continues... I mean, I know studies mm. take time and to do good work, it also takes time if they want to really demonstrate effects. So, but yeah. it's just often, so often it's a delaying tactic. Uh, and, well, and, and oh, we can't do anything till we have the evidence. Mm, and yeah. ten years on, you know, still these companies are able to, to get away with these kinds of things. Yeah, I mean, th there can be that aspect of it. So, um, and well, in referring to your earlier point, I, I can guarantee you that if this sort of toxic blast had happened in Brighton or in Turak, like there'd be wraparound lifetime health studies for every individual involved. There'd be uh, a whole sort of hue and cry that just doesn't seem to happen if it's in the northern or western suburbs or any other industrial suburb for that matter. Um, yeah, I mean, there can be a thing of, you know, um, there's a bit of a hullabaloo in the community, so... You know, mm. the practical alternative to action is calling an inquiry. But on the other hand, we do actually want... Look, no one's even looking. That should be mm. one of the first steps. One of the first steps. And um, just to so, sort of finalise, I think the, the other thing that you mentioned, which you're calling for, is uh, that sort of European style. I think it's somewhere like um, uh, Denmark or even Norway, where they have a government-owned recycling and toxic waste disposal plant, which, you know, is working... 
efficiently, which is modern, clean, high-tech, with great professional jobs as well. And, and one of the other things is you, you'd probably relieve pressure on the toxic waste dump out in Melton as well. You'd think so. Like, it's not like I've done this extensive. It sounds like you've done more research than me in terms of alternatives around the world, but I don't think you have to be an expert in the area to realise what we've got at the moment in Melbourne and in the northern and western suburbs is certainly not world's best practice. We can learn plenty from other countries, their successes and their failures, um, and should be applying some of those lessons here. But I think one of the first steps is for the government to step in and take control of the whole industry and actually listen to the workers who work in that industry. Like the the workers at Bradbury's, um, the place that went up in Campbellfield, uh, had very recently unionised. Mm. Uh, they were desperately trying to clean up the health and safety in that place, just both both to protect themselves and the surrounding community. So I think um, worker organisation has to be part of the solution as well. Well, Jerome, it's going to be a very, very interesting few years, especially with um, you know what has been happening over the last three years in that area. Do we have to wait to see another one, another another you know fire but um we appreciate you joining us and good luck uh with the campaign cheers yeah sorry for being hard to get hold of um early voting <laughs> kicks off in about an hour and a half so <laughs> i was just scrambling a few things together and missed the phone but yeah no um, thanks thanks to judith and to you dean and uh yeah thanks to 3cr thanks jerome and that was uh, Jerome Small who is the Victorian Socialist candidate for Coldwell. We'll be back in just a moment. Going downtown to see the shoeshine boy. Going downtown to see the shoeshine boy. Going downtown to see the shoeshine boy. Gotta get home before he uh, Kucha Edwards with um, Downtown. And um, I'm thinking of Kucha this morning, particularly because we have the Yerimboy Festival coming up, and he's going to be performing at the festival. And uh, it's called Kucha's Carpool Kurioki. <laughs> so, <laughs> if, you know, if you know about the Carpool Kurioki, uh, it would be fascinating. And it's free, and it's Saturday, the 11th of May. But anyway, just get out the festival program. Yerimboy means tomorrow, and it's an Aboriginal festival featuring Aboriginal artists, and uh, it looks fantastic, actually. I'm going to something from there. Are you? Yeah. So am I. Yeah. What oh are you going to go to? Well, I'm going over to Footscray Community Arts Centre to see the play. Nice. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, I, mean, I don't have it right in front of me, the name of it. Oh, but I should tell you, um, Dean, your man, Dan Sultan, is going to be on with special guests oh, at Melbourne Town Hall. So, yeah. So so that, hopefully that's the weekend of the 17th that he's playing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's no, no. Oh, it's May right. the fifth. It's coming up. Oh, that's soon. on Sunday. Yeah. yeah. So right. you're gonna have I might to, have to uh, yeah, look at your year and boy festival ooh, guide. You're going to have to do that. I'm going to the Miss First Nation, oh. the Indigenous Drag. Competition. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, I'm really excited. May the 10th. Yeah, I heard it was sold out. Well, the, the finale is. So oh, I'm going okay. to the one before the finale, oh, okay. um, which Good. is the talent show and the cultural dress. So they each make a cultural mm. dress or something like that. Mm. But yeah, it's going to be awesome. Yeah, it will be. It'll be fabulous. So um, speaking of fabulous, I went up to Castle, Maine. <laughs> I took the train. It's a beautiful train ride. Um, it is. It was so much fun. 
just enjoyed it and uh, to meet um, Stacy, not Stacy, Casey, sorry, Casey Sinclair, who's a PhD candidate at La Trobe. Her honors thesis was on intersectional colonial women, women of color, and uh, on the Mount Alexander Goldfields. And she told me she found lots, which was really interesting because, you know, it's not that visible within the history of Australia that you generally read. And uh, now she's uh, conducting her PhD research. She's just getting into it about one of those women, Fanny Finch. She's looking at who she was, what happened to her on the goldfields, and also what happened to her in Australian historiography. So uh, let's hear what Casey had to say. I started by asking her why she's studying Fanny Finch. Initially, when I started my honours thesis, I was going to be writing about women in Castlemaine currently, and I really wanted to get to know the women of Castlemaine from the past. So I spoke to Robin Anir, she's a historian. So I said to her, when, when I say women of Castlemaine to you from the gold rush, what comes to mind? And she said, oh, have you heard of Fanny Finch? And from that moment, I was just in love. I just was hooked completely. And from that day, I, Fanny Finch was just the person that I was studying for the next two years. So tell me about her life. What was it that intrigued you about her? Well, I think what intrigued me most is that when you think of colonial women, I think of very compliant Anglo women. And Fanny Finch just defied that stereotype. She was a woman of African racial heritage, for one. She was a woman who left her husband in 1850 and took her children interstate or intercolonially to Victoria from South Australia. I just thought that was absolutely incredible, audacious, so brave, and just not something that I thought colonial women did. She came to Castlemaine and she she ran a business on her own and was up against great oppression and great resistance. People were trying to get her out of town because she was an independent, self-determined woman, paying for her children's education so they could have a better life. I just find that so fascinating that a woman like that existed and I've only just heard about her. So it's really important to me that other people know about her as well. I wanted to find out more about Fanny Finch's early life and when she was born. Uh, The Night of Illuminations was this grand celebration and Lydia Holloway, Fanny's mother, and Fanny's father, John King, celebrated in the new building one evening. Lydia Holloway's mistress found out that she was pregnant and then when she became visibly pregnant, they fired her. And so she went to live with someone else, had Fanny Finch. She was actually born Louisa King. Fanny Finch. And eight weeks later, she petitioned her to the Foundling Hospital where she was accepted as a foundling. What did it mean to be accepted as a foundling? There was a very strict criteria. That was maternal morality. So the mother had to prove that she was seduced, for one, and that she was found alone by no fault of her own, that she was abandoned by the father was another. And Lydia Holloway could prove through various pieces of evidence that she was both moral and she was at risk of destitution. There's no explicit evidence that Lydia Holloway was an African woman, uh, but it's highly likely that John King, who was a footman, and it was very fashionable at the time to have an African footman, um, so it's probable that he was of African racial heritage and possible that she was a white woman or possibly from the Caribbean or African. So at the moment, aside from the sampler, which is something that incredibly the family came across, 
I just want to explain that a sampler is a piece of art, a piece of embroidery that women in particular were encouraged to make as children. And Fanny Finch made one when she was at the Foundling Hospital. So that's what we're going to hear about now. Which family came across? Uh, Fanny Finch's descendants. And I'm not sure the story behind how they came into that. I suspect the woman who purchased it Google searched actually and then the, the online family tree came up and then she was in contact with the Adelaide line of Fanny's descendants. I was really curious about how actually you discovered that. Yeah. So someone bought it maybe at an op shop or an antique shop or something? Is that what happened? That's exactly what happened, yeah. A woman from the south of London who was a collector of cross-stitch samplers from the era went to an antiques fair and she saw this sampler and recognised its significance because it depicted two African British people and purchased it for a couple of hundred pounds, I believe. Have you seen it? Have you actually touched this sampler? No, I haven't, but I'm planning to go to the UK to, to continue my research and i have definitely be in contact with the owner. I've actually acquired her apprenticeship record from the Foundling Hospital that tells me her movements from the moment that she graduates as a Foundling, each household she goes to over that se- the course of that seven-year apprenticeship. And in 1836, there's a big stamp on that record saying apprenticeship cancelled due to emigration to South Australia. How did you go about the research? So the first thing that I did is go to Trove. Trove is the National Library's digitised archive of newspapers, and, and that told me quite a bit. And then I did the next logical thing, which was go to Google, and that's how I found the family. And they had done so much research into their great-great-grandmother. So you went to Trove, you went to Google, and you got in touch with the family. Where do you go after that? From that point, I go to birth, deaths and marriages. From there, I went to the records of South Australia and I was able to track down her husband's movements. And that's where I discovered that she had left him. Were you able to find out anything more about why? What I was able to find out was that there was discord in their relationship a few years prior. How did you know that? I discovered that through the court records because Joseph Finch, who is, was Fanny's husband, was taken to court and was Fanny, actually, for cashing in a cheque that wasn't their own. Joseph Finch found this cheque as he was walking down the the streets of Adelaide, and he was illiterate, so he then took the cheque to his wife, who was literate, and offered her a deal. And he said to her, if you cash this cheque in, then you can keep one pound out of the six pounds. She said to him, no, you know, I will not do that. I will not, you know, risk transportation by committing a crime, but she cashed the cheque without telling her husband and kept all the money for herself. And what this court case revealed was that he wasn't supporting the family. Witnesses testified to that. They said, well, all she was doing was trying to put food on the table for her children, and that wasn't happening. So she paid her rent. She bought cotton, which I can only assume was to to sew clothing for her children. And she had some cash left over, but... Unfortunately, the owner of the cheque tracked its exchange at a local store and they tracked her down and both of them were taken to prison and tried for the stealing of the cheque and cashing of the cheque. They were in prison for 10 days, but they were both let off on a technicality that a husband is responsible for his wife's actions, but the husband didn't do anything in this instance, so it's only a breach of trust on the part of, of the husband and wife. And so they were both freed. 
that's what gave you the sense that things weren't happy in the home. I, I do need more evidence, but what I do know is that in 1850, I find Fanny here with at least her two sons, and I know that Joseph Finch is still in Adelaide. What the exact circumstances were in the lead-up to, to this separation, I can't be certain, but from what we know about Fanny's character and the fact that Joseph Finch actually is in and out of destitute asylums, well, from the year Fanny leaves till his death, says to me that, that, that it was on Fanny's volition that she left. I mean, isn't it amazing research? It's mm. so yeah. meticulous, the, the thing, you know, and, and you, it's like a detective story. It's like you, you follow trails, but it gives you such a sense of, um, you know, the status of women at that time. You know, you're almost owned yeah. by your husband and, uh, and in the law. And, of course, it would have been a time when the suffragettes were very active in the U.K. and trying to get those changes. But now we're going to very hear... Very strong m- woman. Us, mm. Yes, mm. and... Uh, it also shows, I think, the power of literacy, mm. being able to read and yeah. write. And, yeah. you know, in those days, a lot of men couldn't read and write, yeah. weren't literate, uh, you know, and, and for women, often they had le- even less access mm. to education. Mm. So that was, um, that was really interesting. Funny so how her husband thought he was getting one up on her by <laughs> saying, well, you can read if you read this and you do this and you get a pound. Yeah. And she's like, yeah. and I'll get the rest. <laughs> I think I'm going to take it. Yeah, yeah. I think she was. It was. She wasn't only literate. I think she was an incredibly smart mm. woman, and she knew that was a bad deal. Yeah. And you know, if he had been supporting the family, you might know, have might different. have been okay. Mm. But uh, it was interesting that the you know what you find in the court records yeah. that people testified that in fact uh, he wasn't supporting the family. We don't know more. And and of course, in the way of historians, she's saying. She's qualifying. She said, you know, I need to find out more. I need to find out more. And of course, but, you know, we, we can still learn a lot from what she knows already about the position and the status of women and also, you know, what the literacy meant in that case. And, yeah, what relationships were like. But now we're going to hear what happens when she comes to Victoria. In about May 1850 is when I estimate that she arrived. She's in Melbourne, near Little Burke Street. I don't know what she's doing, but I do know that... She's there in that area because of a court case. Was she charged? Is that why the court case? No, um, Fanny Finch actually reported a mother who was abusing her child to the police and the mother was tried for neglect and Fanny was one of the primary witnesses. So she was in Melbourne for a while and then she eventually leaves. I estimate that she was in Melbourne for 12 months minimum. Uh, and then she's found in the goldfields in early 1852. And how was she making a living? When she came to the goldfields, a woman of colour was one of the first on the goldfields, um, said uh, Augustus Yandel, um, who was an old pioneer of Castlemaine. A woman of colour arrived on the goldfields with a wheelbarrow in which held a bathtub. And another record suggests that a woman arrived with a wheelbarrow and a bathtub and started doing laundry for the diggers. But according to Augustus Yandel, she started in the grog line. So she was sly grogging from the moment that she arrived. But this was common. So many people were sly grogging at that time that it's not really of any really significance. So she comes to uh, Victoria, she, to Melbourne. She goes up to um, near Castle Maynard to the goldfields. She's doing laundry. Maybe she's sly grogging. Where does she go from there? She commences a boarding house and a restaurant, which she opens up 
I suspect, a few doors down from where the Red Hill Hotel is in Tewton currently. There she runs a restaurant, a very successful restaurant, a very successful boarding house. The commissioners, the employees of the Port Phillip Mining Company are said to have frequented her restaurant. So she's very successful there. In 1854, she then moves to the newly established township of Castlemaine, which is only a few kilometres away from Forest Creek. The Argus describes her as the famous Mrs Fanny Finch. Why famous? She was highly conspicuous on the goldfields. She was a woman of colour. She was a woman of colour that had money. She was there from the beginning of the gold rush, so she most likely had gold nuggets thrown at her as a woman offering slagrog, offering food, offering boarding. She was a woman who was known to dress in bright blue silk with her hair adorned in artificial flowers. She was loud. She had a very general latitude in her conduct, is what one old pioneer said. So she was a woman that was unafraid of her visibility. And I like to imagine that she held her head very high when she walked around the streets of Castlemaine. And so for that reason... Everyone knew who Fanny Finch was. It must have been pretty rough and ready on the goldfields. Is there any proof that uh, she experienced some assaults on her position? Absolutely. She was constantly fighting for her right to be a woman supporting her children on her own. In 1856, when she voted... She was actually under great strain because only a month prior to that she was taken to court for slugrogging, which was actually a really controversial, controversial thing because everyone did it, so it was known to be common practice, but to be caught doing it was quite, quite a different thing. She was highly vulnerable because she was a woman occupying space in a male world. So she was caught slugrogging, but... I've actually only a few days ago found a letter that she wrote to the Mount Alexander Mail during her court trial for slagrogging. Um, in this particular letter, she explicitly says that she was framed. She says that the two men came into her tent who were dressed in uniform. They asked for a drink and she obliged. She gave them a drink, which was fine. This was not an illegal thing to do. The illegal part came in when money was exchanged. And she said, I did not take money for the brandy that they drank. But the two men who, according to her, committed perjury and said that they did give her money, which in the end cost her £50 and would have been a huge blow to her business and her reputation as well. It was a huge blow to her and her family, as she says in this particular letter. Um, and in a letter that someone else writes to the Mount Alexander Mail in support of Fanny, she casts her vote a month later and it's disallowed for reasons that aren't, aren't mentioned. I suspect that it has something to do with her position in the township at the time and that perhaps the disallowance of her vote was an another experience of oppression. There one particular discovery or, or were there several that really stood out for you? There were so many moments. The most recent one is the letter that I just discovered at the Castlemaine Historical Society uh, two days ago because... I had done my initial research on Trove. I couldn't find what I needed. I was looking for this letter of, of Fanny's. How did you know the letter existed? Because someone wrote a letter supporting Fanny during the trial, the Slygrog trial, um, and it makes reference to her letter. So I went looking for her letter and couldn't find it. I noticed that there were a few articles that had been cut out of this particular issue. So I tried to track down... Uh, another issue 
And only in the last couple of weeks I was told that the Historical Society of Castlemaine had them in their storage. So I went there and I went through the entire issue with the articles that were missing in Trove. They were intact, but Fanny's letter was nowhere to be seen. And I was so confused. Lo and behold, we get to the, the last page of this particular issue and the volunteer's about to close the book and I said, no, 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 hang on a second, let me just turn the page. <laughs> I turned the page and another page had been tacked on to this particular issue that wasn't on Trove. It wasn't in their physical archive either. So it was just this final page that didn't exist at the State Library that was there in the Castlemaine Historical Society and it was the final article on the final page and it said Fanny Finch's case and it's about an 800-word letter from the woman herself stipulating her own experiences of the trial, of the fact that she's trying to get booted out of Castlemaine, of the fact that she's been framed. She doesn't understand the charge of a disorderly tent. Why are they trying to get her for a disorderly tent? So she's challenging the legislation of the time. She's challenging the court. She's challenging the police, the justice system. It's, it's just incredible. I mean, the other thing I find incredible is her level of education, because it sounds to me from what you're describing that she is very articulate and a good writer. So she must have had a good education at the Foundling Hospital. She did, and she, and she was very fortunate for that reason. The Foundling Hospital, their objective was to produce Londoners or, or, or people British people that would make a positive contribution to the British economy. Foundational to that is literacy. So she grew up as a literate woman, a woman that was obviously apprenticed in the domestic service. Had she gone to any other orphanage, it's likely that she wouldn't have come out as, as literate and educated as she was. And that was foundational, crucial to her being able to run a business on the goldfields. Why is she historically significant? To me, she's historically significant because I'm a woman who identifies as intersectional. My, my dad is Indian, my mum is Sri Lankan. And in the classroom, during his, in history class, in primary school and in high school, I always felt on the outer, I always felt like I wasn't a part of the Australian story because there were all these stories about particularly white men and the occasional white woman, but I just never conceived of an Australian colonial landscape including people that were beyond, you know, the Anglo kind of picture of Australianism. So to know that there was Indians there, there were people of African racial heritage, to know that they were there and they were doing incredible things that they had agency, that they were making money on the goldfields, that they were running businesses, to me, just makes me feel a part, more a part of the Australian story than I did before. And it's really important to me that other people who identify as intersectional or as of colour, that they know that they're a part of this story. And um, that was um, Casey Sinclair, PhD candidate at La Trobe University. And what a great PhD project, the study mm. of... Fanny Finch was such a, an incredible woman, such a gutsy woman. So, and, and uh, you know, when I spoke to her, she's already finding new things. So I think it's a story to follow, and it's going to be you know, a great project to learn more about. Now, um, coming up next, we're going to be speaking with uh, Dr. Dennis Muller. He's a, a senior research fellow at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. 
And he's also um, an expert, a leading expert on media ethics. Uh, He's written a paper entitled Lies, Obfuscation and Fake News Make for a Dispiriting and Dangerous Election Campaign. So uh, we're going to speak to him right now. Hello, Dennis. Hello, Judith. And Dennis, are you in Bateman's Bay? I'm just out of Bateman's Bay on the King's Highway at a little place called Nelligen, a very pretty little place on the Clyde River. Well, great. Thanks for, for stopping at the side of the road and, and taking our call. Okay. So, so Dennis, I'm just wondering, because you write about lots of different things, uh, what brought you to this story? Well, uh, I think that it's, there's been a trend uh, for at least the last three years or so um, where fake news has um, been a disturbing feature of elections. Of course, uh, we're most famously in the United States in 2016. And so the whole issue of fake news, of course, is very related to the whole question of media ethics because the first duty of a journalist is to verify the truth of something before they publish it. So fake news has been interesting me since uh, it was... I suppose, given a name by Donald Trump's White House team, you know, the team who gave us the magnificent phrase alternative facts. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So that's, that's how I got into it, Judith. I, I, I just thought that it was so closely associated with the, the core ethical duties of journalists that uh, it was something I should take an interest in. Yes, and it's funny. It's interesting, Dennis. That was a question I was going to ask you at the very end, was how it related to, to ethics, but uh, you've answered that already. So so you say in your paper that you've seen our first recorded instance of Facebook running Australian fake news. Can you just tell us more about that? Yes, well, it was a false post about the Labor Party's tax policies. It, it said wrongly that, that Labor intended introducing a 40% inheritance tax. And then what the false post did was to contain a link to a press release that was issued in January this year, so some months ago, by the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg. Um, And in that press release, Frydenberg referred to uh, Andrew Lee, who's Labor's Assistant Treasury Spokesman, saying that 13 years ago, 13 years ago, (laughs) Lee, when he was an academic, had written a paper favouring the introduction of an inheritance tax. So you can see how... That little nugget of kind of out-of-date truthiness provided just that little look uh, of, or appearance of truthfulness. And so uh, at the same time as it happened, the Labor Party had a, a black van driving around in Canberra, I believe, um, with signs saying that Labor will tax you to death. So all of these things are kind of playing into the development of this uh, of this false post saying that they were going to introduce a an inheritance tax which is another word for a, for death duties and as a matter of fact in australia death duties are state taxes not federal taxes so it's wrong so, so another bit of fake news going on yeah absolutely yes yeah i mean they, they were abolished actually um catch me all day no death duties were in all australian states until queensland under jb peterson abolished them in the 1970s and then each state followed suit. I see. 
So um, has I mean I'm just curious about um, whether Facebook has taken down the original post or not. I think there wasn't wasn't he asked to do it by the weren't they asked to do it by the Labour Party? Well, the Labour Party asked them to do it, but there's no sign that they have. And when I wrote this article, uh, it was four days after the post. The post went up on Good Friday, and um, I wrote this article uh, on Easter Monday, and uh, it still wasn't down then, and I haven't checked since. But um, Facebook are notoriously slow to respond on these questions. So I I don't know is is the honest answer. Yes. So, and, and I understand from your paper that last year there was a battle between the Australian Electoral Commission and Facebook over unauthorized political ads. Yeah, well, the ABC uh, got some documents under freedom of information laws from the Australian Electoral Commission. And what the ABC is reporting out of those documents is that for some months last year, uh, the Electoral Commission and Facebook were having uh, a long series of correspondence uh, over uh, some political ads from an outfit called Hands Off Our Democracy. Now, the law in Australia is that if you put a political advertisement uh, in anywhere, then you have to authorise it by giving the name of the person who is putting it up. And uh, the Electoral Commission were trying to enforce this law on Facebook. And Facebook, for a good while just stonewalled the Electoral Commission and finally that uh, hands off our democracy post disappeared. No one knows why it disappeared, whether the author of it took it down or whether Facebook took it down, but it's a good indication, I think, of the way in which Facebook uh, are fairly cavalier in their attitudes towards electoral uh, commissions or people who are trying to enforce the electoral laws. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. And Dennis, just a, a quick one. Why do you believe that political parties still persist with Facebook? And uh, I mean, apart from the younger generation being on it, well, what's the, what's the what's there to gain? Well, it's a it's a big scattergun, Facebook. I mean, you you get to an awful lot of people. You don't know who you're getting to, but mm. but you're getting to a lot. We know this. We know this much. And so, uh, I think it's part. I think partly also politicians are of a generation who are not particularly agile on social media so once they get into once they master one particular way of doing it they're inclined to stick with it because trying to change to something else is just a pain in the neck Mm. so i imagine there's that element as well but um uh, i think mainly it's the sort of um ubiquitous presence of, of facebook makes it seem attractive even if uh trust in facebook itself is on the wane. And, uh, Dennis, you, you said that um, I think Facebook also, the laws or the commitment it made to, be, to scrutinise the things it posted has not been applied in Australia. Well, that's right. The, um, you might remember that last year Mark Zuckerberg did what has become known as his apology tour to Washington and, and the, United, and the uh, European Union in Brussels saying we've made mistakes, we're terribly sorry, we're going to fix it. One of the things we're going to fix is we're going to make sure that all political ads are authorised. And, of course, this was precisely the question over which they played ducks and drakes with the Australian Electoral Commission. So, uh, as with many of Mark Zuckerberg's promises, so far 
it's come to nothing, certainly where Australia's concerned. And mm. so it leaves us as voters to be vigilant and careful about what we believe when we see this stuff popping up on Facebook. Yes, and is the uh, Australian Electoral Commission doing something about that? They, they're doing the level best. In fact, just before I came on air, I was listening to Tom Rogers, the um, uh, Australian Electoral Commissioner, and he was talking about uh, a, a, an integrity uh, unit, um, a task force which has been set up within the Electoral Commission with the assistance of the intelligence agencies, firstly to try to protect the Australian Electoral Commission's own um, processes, its own electronic processes from being hacked or being interfered with, um, but also the Electoral Commission is on the front foot over fake news. It's going out of its way to um, advise the public to be careful about um, uh, about the, uh, uh, the information they take in to be sure that they... Uh, that they're getting stuff from reliable sources. So the Electoral Commission's on the front foot in both looking after its own processes and the integrity of those and also reminding people to, you know, be careful where you get your stuff from. Yes, indeed. And, of course, um, related to that, the Adani coal mine is a huge issue this election and climate change. And Bob Brown is. is leading a convoy to Queensland to protest. And I understand this has also been subjected to fake news. Yes, I believe so. Um, and uh, I, I, it's not something I know a great deal about, but it's uh, it's certainly uh, a serious problem. I mean, all of these issues concerning fake news and the bamboozing of the electorate, I think, you know, are, are really... They represent a, a really serious um, threat to our to our democratic processes. You know, it's, uh, it's not... Um, it's not a, a, a small matter at all. Yes, I agree. And, I mean, how big do you think it will be? How big a factor do you think it will be in this election? Well, I don't think it will be a very big factor. I don't think it's going to be anything like as big a factor as it was in the United States election, partly, mainly because I think we're all so alert to it now, um, and partly because we've seen over the past couple of years a decline in the... Uh, in the trust that people have in social media generally as a source of news and information. Uh, they, they are much more inclined now to believe what they see in the mainstream media. We've seen that on a thing called the Edelman Trust Index, which has been showing uh, a decline since 2015 in trust in social media as a source of news and a corresponding increase in trust in mainstream media as a source of news. So I think coupled with the awareness of what's happened in the United States and in the UK to some extent, coupled with the, uh, the realisation that uh, there's an awful lot of rubbish on mm. social media uh, and uh, the, the, the efforts of the Electoral Commission, I think it will... Uh, it'll be a, a, a play quite a small part, I hope, anyway. But, but it still leaves us open, doesn't it, Dennis, to somebody with, uh, six months after the election coming back and saying, oh, this happened, this happened, and then it opens up a whole other can of worms. Absolutely. Well, you know, we hope that if, if there is something going wrong that we don't know about, that it will come to light. But, it's, I mean, it's impossible to know, but um, we seem not to be quite as prone mm. here, I think, to... Um, uh, to these mass uh, assaults of misinformation as 
seems to have happened in the US. I mean, we don't, and the other thing we don't have, very importantly, is we don't have Fox News. We have a kind of parliamentation <laughs> in the form of Sky News, but it, audiences are tiny, and uh, and I think that that was a, a, a particularly pernicious uh, influence on the United States election, where Fox News has a very high household penetration. We right. don't have an equivalent mm. uh, in Australia, although, I mean, Fox News now goes to air, free to air in some regional areas, but it's primarily um, a pay TV operation and its audiences are very small. So I think if you look at those two factors, then uh, we're likely to have a somewhat cleaner election in an information sense than the United States had in 2016. Well, Dennis, thing, I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of, um, heartening news. <laughs> well, you underestimate the power well, of 3CR, well, Dennis, I, I, you I, know. I, I, I am getting, <laughs> um, I am getting, but I mean, I that's, that's my sort of, that's, that's my best guess about, about what's going on. Yes. Well, look, thank you so much for coming on 3CR Monday Breakfast this morning, because I know you're en route to Canberra, and that will probably be fascinating too. I imagine you'll be, um, Continuing to be producing stories for the conversation about what's going on in the election. Is that your purpose well, in Canberra? That's what they've asked me to do, so I'll go okay. and do my best. Yeah. <laughs> wonderful. Thank so, you, Dennis. Okay. Yeah, it's been Thanks wonderful lot, speaking with you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Judith. Bye bye. And that was Dennis Muller talking yes. to us. A senior research fellow at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne and a leading expert on media ethics. So, yeah, and you can get that paper in the conversation. Definitely worth looking up. It came out on Friday. Lies, obfuscation and fake news make for a dispiriting and dangerous election campaign. And we will post that on our website. And here's some music. was Molly Johnson, uh, Canadian jazz. We've been playing her a little bit lately over the last month or so. Somehow her songs are, are quite suitable. That was um, kind of in honour of the amazing Fanny Finch who we heard about earlier from, um, from Casey Sinclair, PhD student at La Trobe. So, yeah, wonderful to, to get that story. And also to hear Molly, such a beautiful voice. So now on the line, um, we're going to speak to, be speaking with uh, Susie Jamil, and uh, she's the director of Thinking, and she's going to tell us more about uh, what's coming up. And she's also going to give us some giveaway tickets, I think, to uh, Jane Goodall. So, Susie, welcome to 3CR Monday Breakfast. Thank you for having me, Judith. Yeah, it's good, good to talk. And uh, I'm just wondering if I've pronounced your last name correctly. Yeah, perfectly. Oh, good. Oh, my goodness. That <laughs> makes my Monday morning. <laughs> That's great. So I thought we could just start, if you would tell me about um, Thinking. So I think you're a, certainly the director. Are you also a founder or owner of Thinking? Yeah, that's right. No, I started thinking 2014 was our first tour um, of a theoretical physicist in Australia. Um, essentially, I've created a brand to raise intellectual discourse across Australia and New Zealand, and I do that by running large-scale public events. So with anyone that has ideas that change and challenge 
the way that we see the world. I'll bring them into Australia to, to inspire, to kind of raise awareness of, of the issues that we're currently dealing with in today's society. Right, and I remember uh, thinking brought Chelsea Manning to us. Well, didn't actually, and tried to bring Chelsea Manning to Australia <laughs> last year. Yeah, yeah, that was um, that was a very challenging tour. I think it was well worthwhile. I think that um, although we may not agree with all the actions that that Chelsea might have taken part in, I think that it's very important to provide a platform to ask questions to people that we disagree with or maybe that we agree with and find out the, the real root of the reasons why they do what they do. Um, and I think Chelsea's tool was a really, really important one. I think that she does have a voice that we um, we need to hear in today's society. And um, the challenges were were deep with that one. We had trouble bringing her into the country. The government well, well you, didn't, in. you didn't get, excuse me for interrupting, you didn't bring her into the country, did you? You ended up having to do a That's video right. link. Yeah. That's right, yes. The New Zealand government let her into New Zealand, but the Australian government wouldn't let her into to Australia, so we had to do it via video link from Auckland, which was a big, big challenge for us. Yes, um, I, I have to say, uh, I have to say, Susie, I went, I went in Melbourne to see her on video link, and the whole time I was watching, <laughs> what is the Australian government afraid of? I mean, you know, with this person, why would they not bring her into the country? It seemed somehow ridiculous, but it was great, even you know, that we could hear her on video link. So, so that was terrific. Yeah, I feel that you know the fact that we got her over via video link was the best solution that we could find, and I think that it was better to do that than not have her speak at all. I think that you know if if they'd silenced her completely, it would have been a loss for us. Yes. So now you've um, got Jane Goodall coming. So tell us about why you thought it was important to bring Jane here to Australia. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Jane Goodall is is, is renowned. She um. You know, you probably know a little bit about her background, but she travelled over to Tanzania. It, w- it would be 60 years next year since she arrived in Tanzania for her research with chimpanzees. And, um, you know, all these years later, we're still facing a lot of issues with climate change and conservation. And I think that it's very important to have someone like Dr. Goodall discuss these issues publicly um, since she has such a deep, well-founded knowledge about this subject. So uh, it's such an honour to have someone with such experience coming and speaking um, to, to our audiences. Yes, indeed. And um, you very kindly offered us some some tickets here at uh, at 3CR to subscribers, so, so two double passes, uh, which is fantastic. Tell me, uh, what are the dates that Jane Goodall will be here and, and speaking? Yeah, so her Melbourne show will be on Saturday the 11th of May at the plenary at the MCEC. And, yeah, we'd absolutely love to have a few of um, of your members come along and join us for the show. Yeah, terrific. And what other speakers have you got coming up this year? Yeah, we've got um we've got the moral psychologist Jonathan Haidt coming out in July and I'm really excited to be bringing him down to Melbourne as well. We'll be talking about outrage culture, moral psychology, a range of issues um and and I think that'll be a really really interesting one for your listeners as well. Yes, okay. And when when will he be out? Um, that will be in July. Let me bring the date up for you right now. So he'll be speaking in Melbourne on Sunday, the 21st of July. Okay, terrific. Well, we'll look, we'll look out for that. So, um, Susie, is there anything else you'd like to tell us about your organization? Like, what kind of response are you getting uh, to the events you're putting on? 
Yeah, well, to be honest with you, Judith, it's, it's an overwhelming response. I think that there's a lot of need for conversation in today's society. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, it's all about putting on events that provide a platform, not only for raising intellectual discourse, but also for even how to debate. I think that there's a lot of... Um, events or a lot of things happening in society at the moment which don't provide a platform to hear both sides of the conversation or to hear perspectives. So I really would like to encourage people not only to come to events that they specifically find interesting but open their mind up to going on a bit of a journey of discovery and and listening and hearing different perspectives. You know, conversation is, is the way forward in the world. You know, violence isn't. So I think it's very important that we continue to have conversations and we continue to share ideas um, and I think that's the way to move forward. And, and I think the message too, which is, you know, what what as an individual, what you do makes a difference and I guess you have to decide what kind of difference you want to make. So going and hearing people like uh, Dame Jane Goodall um, talk about her beliefs and, you know, what their perspectives on the current environmental issues and things like that are opens up, you know, a, a different pathway. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think that it's, it's important to hear different perspectives in, in the form of, of what we're doing and, you know, coming together even with community and, and seeing that there are like-minded people out there like you that are interested in ideas and sharing ideas and, and discussing them provides a bit of, you know, perspective. You know, no, no one's allowed, uh, out there alone in the way that they're thinking about the world. So I think it's a really important thing to do and, and could be very valuable for individuals. Susie, you know, the, the need for conversation, which you talked about, it's interesting it was raised here on this show. I mean, it's, of course, it's been raised often, but in particular, a young woman who's de- done research with other young people around climate change and, and uh, how young people are feeling about it. And one of the things she said is we need to talk more. We need to talk more about that. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, yeah important work you're doing, I think. And uh, we're very grateful that you've offered our listeners an opportunity to come along and have some ticket-free thank tickets. You. That's great. Thank you, guys. No, thank you so much for having me. Thank it's, you, Susie. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Susie. And uh, that was Susie Jamil, Director of Thinking. And if you're interested in getting those two double passes to the to Jane Goodall coming Dame, up, Jane. Dame, yes, I know. Sorry, <laughs> I noticed Dean, that you that you. Uh, yes, I, I noticed at the time, and then I didn't. It didn't sink in. Yeah, Dame. she's also, more importantly, she's a doctor. I guess which is more important both, than the Dame both, part. Both of them. I could be knighted Dame for playing doctor. cricket. How do, you, how do you do it, Dame Doctor? I haven't really. Found <laughs> no, I don't think those two go together. You're either one You're either or the other. Oh, is that right? <laughs> anyway, obviously, a very renowned oh, primatologist. Uh, Amazing and, work. And, and a legend, mm. yeah, for sure. And so if people are interested in getting um, those tickets or the two double passes, phone 3CR on 941-9837 after 8.30 because we'll just be closing the show now to you know, say goodbye and introduce the, the next show coming up, which is Women on the Line. So after 8.30, we'll be on the phone to take your call to double passes available to see Dame Jane Goodall <laughs> and acclaimed primatologist. Yeah. But she, uh, she, she has often lamented that Tarzan married the wrong Jane. Oh, has she? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story. Okay. So we've had uh, a, we've had a fabulous um, group of people on the show this morning. I've really enjoyed every single one. I usually do, but uh, yeah, <laughs> usually I mean, do. We started do. off with uh, the Victorian Socialist member for Coldwell, um, Jerome Small, talking to us about you know I guess um, 
maybe the government trying to uh, become uh, an environmentalist and, and having their own um, toxic waste dump, which could be cleaner and obviously ran better if it was government-owned more than a business entity running it yes. out in the old Ford plant in Campbellfield. Yes, and certainly uh, the failure uh, of government regulations to, to deal with some yeah, of the Yeah, that, that, that whole incident with that fire is, is insane. Yes. And um, we also spoke to um, Casey Sinclair about her, re- her research into Mrs. Stanny Finch, which was just so exciting, and we'll be following that story, that's for sure, to find out more. And, um, for, you know, about women of colour on the goldfields. Mm. Um, yeah, and the idea that period. she was, you know, the first woman to try and vote as well yes. in Victoria. You know, and it took so long for the vote to happen for people I mean, of sorry, colour. I'm about 2000. I think, oh, God, no, the date just escaped It would have me. been somewhere in the 70s or 60s. Oh, sorry. Well, there's two different things because, of course, there was federal voting, mm. there was state voting, yeah. and uh, and uh, and of course, um, Indigenous women. It was even later. That's right. Before yeah. they got the vote. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a huge that's a huge issue. So it seems that in Victoria, some women were able to vote in municipal elections. Yeah. Yeah. In in Victoria, going back to the 1800s, actually. And um, and then also we spoke to to Dennis Muller, and it'll be interesting to see his reports coming out of Canberra uh, during the election and fantastic um, insight into what's going on in Australia around the fake news. And the An amazing, amazing struggle that they find themselves in, especially with the fact that yeah. Facebook are an entity to their own. You know, you, the government makes a request about how we run our elections and yep. what needs to be up there mm. and you know Mark Zuckerberg and his friends are like oh no we'll get to it when we get to it but yeah. in the meantime yeah. yeah and just to remind everyone our phone number here at 3CR is 941 98377 if you want to call in about receiving those tickets and um, it's been great to have your company this morning thanks Alice thank you. you here and Dean oh thank yeah. you Judith and um, yeah we'll be back again next week next uh, be a bit of a longer period before the next lot of holidays which mm. we'll keep the same yeah and we'll be looking at the election more closely next week mm. as well mm. so, yeah it's, uh, it's only a few weeks away. It's not far at all. We'll, no. we'll be June 30 soon, before we know it. You know. <laughs> yes, yeah, it school will. holidays again. Yeah, and uh, and uh, as far as the weather goes, it's just gotten a little <sighs> bit cooler. Yes, yeah, yes, over the just weekend. a little bit. Yeah, after, after being deluded to think summer was going to go on forever, I'd certainly doubt that. Yeah. Well, well today's a top of 19, uh, okay. and tomorrow is going to be 21, and Wednesday, well, it's hardly 23, with, with hardly um, a lot of rain on Wednesday. Okay. Okay. Um, which yeah. which we need, but you know. Um, yes. Yeah. But you, we've got women on the line next. Um, Stay tuned for that. Are you 18 years and over? Have you been stopped by a Victorian police officer or protective service officer in the last 10 years? Would you like to contribute to research that aims to inform law reform and litigation strategies to prevent over policing? Go to policestopsurvey.online for more information and to take part. That's policestopsurvey.online, a 3CR supporter. 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall, and eco-friendly paper and printing outfit, Earth Greetings. 
You can check them out at nibs.org.au and earthgreetings.com.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 8377. Thanks for listening to a Monday Breakfast podcast on 3CR.